But this time we look at the economics of the early modern world. So the setting is about 1450, and at this time, Europe is only starting to fully recover from the devastation of the bubonic plague from the 14th century. If you remember, the Ottomans conquered Constantinople in 1453, effectively closing off access to the eastern Mediterranean for European merchants. If they wanted to trade with Asia, Europeans needed to work with Venetian traders trading in Egypt. China and India, though, remain the center of manufacturing and trade, and the Indian Ocean Basin is the heart of transregional trade. But the outcome? By 1750, Europeans will have control over not only the Mediterranean trade network, but also effectively control the Indian Ocean, Atlantic, and Pacific routes of exchange. The economic practices of Europeans will have tremendously negative effects for the people of the Americas, most of Africa, and some parts of Asia. Yet China and Japan largely stood to benefit from much of these developments, while many Asian merchant communities in the Indian Ocean continued to thrive as well. So how did that happen? So we've seen Europeans making more contact with regions, especially after the Crusades. Now, this meant they gained access to more technology over time, really helping with their navigation. If you remember things like the compass and astrolabe, astronomical charts, latin sails, all these different types of things, they're going to help improve European navigation. In the earlier half of the 15th century, Portugal started to explore the waters of the Atlantic as Prince Henry the Navigator was sponsoring voyages along the west coast of Africa in the hopes to find the riches of the sub-Saharan region, but also a sea route to Asia. By 1488, Portuguese sailor Bartolomeu Diaz had reached the southernmost point of Africa, the Cape of Good Hope. His fellow Portuguese Vasco da Gama would finally land in India by 1498. But why did they care so much about India? Well, if you remember from our study of 1200 to 1450, this is a site of spices, cotton, rare gems, and it also brings them geographically closer to China where they could obtain silks. Traveling directly to these markets is going to allow Europeans to directly access the goods thereafter, which is going to cut out those merchant middlemen from Venice. And mercantilist economic theory argued the best economies are going to be those that had more gold and silver than their competition. So it's best to control and avoid too much cooperation when it comes to trade. And this kind of thought process is going to go on to influence European behaviors in the Indian Ocean Network. So once in the Indian Ocean Trade Network, it becomes clear to the Portuguese that Asian markets are not really interested in European goods other than the precious metals that they could offer, which also needed to be found in other non-European markets. So to keep that really simple for you, Europe didn't have the goods to compete in Asian trade. But Indian Ocean trade up to this point in history had been defined by cooperation and mutual exchange. No single power really dominated the region. If you remember, China sent Zheng He on his voyages, but China wasn't trying to control the region and they backed out anyway. Portuguese sailors quickly realized one way to stamp their mark in the Indian Ocean region 
was by using their technological and military superiority in an attempt to dominate trade then. The Portuguese fought battles to control strategic locations like Mombasa in East Africa or Goa in India, Malacca in the Malay Peninsula or other places. This could allow them to require ships to carry passes and pay taxes on their cargoes to the Portuguese crown. Now this plan was attempted, but it never really succeeded because merchants could just avoid Portuguese routes and forts oftentimes. After about a century of this attempted domination, Portugal would lose their strength in the Indian Ocean thanks to both local resistance and the actions of the Dutch and later the British in the region. Now for the Spanish, the voyages of Ferdinand Magellan make Asia accessible by crossing the Pacific. Spain found its way into Asian markets through a gathering of islands in Southeast Asia that now make up the Philippines. The Spanish took control of these islands by launching military attacks from their base of operations all the way across the Pacific Ocean along the west coast of Mexico. Indigenous people of the Philippines were quickly forced to pay taxes and tribute through their labor. But most significantly to this episode, the Spanish would go on to establish their capital of this new colonial territory at Manila in 1571. This new capital would help to establish a global economy as it became the destination for Spanish galleons sailing across the Pacific from Mexico. Chinese and Japanese merchants then could settle in Manila and start to trade with the Spanish more frequently. Now, ultimately, the biggest competition in Asian markets for the Portuguese came from joint stock companies in the Netherlands and Great Britain. The governments of these two countries granted rights to one company for each of them, the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company, creative names I know, to be the only companies allowed to trade in this region. So a group of private investors are each going to invest a bit of their wealth into the company, purchasing stock, meaning they're not going to risk too much of their own money if the effort didn't succeed. But if it worked, then they're making lots of money over a long period of time. The Dutch took their efforts at establishing a trade post-empire one step further than the Portuguese. They wanted to control not only the shipping points, but also the production location of the spices found in Southeast Asia. The British are only really able to focus their efforts on trade posts in India, where they worked out agreements with the Mughals to have the permission to trade them. Now, their control would increase over time. But for now, let's be clear, the British are there because the Mughals permitted it. So although Europeans are getting more involved in Asian markets during this time, don't leave here thinking they're the only dominant force. For example, Japan had just unified itself around the start of the 17th century, and one of the first things the shoguns of the leading Tokugawa family did to maintain control was forbid Europeans, other than the Dutch, from trading or performing missionary activity in the country. Also, Asian merchants still worked throughout the Indian Ocean network and even continued to dominate parts of it. For example, the Chinese kept control of the spice trade between Southeast Asia and China. Indian merchant companies could control access to specific products and with these monopolies, charge really high prices for goods to British merchants. So things were changing, but it didn't always mean at the expense of Asian economic power or influence. Beyond the Indian Ocean, what really helped to establish a global economy was the second best metal in existence, at least according to the International Olympic Committee, silver. When the Spanish conquered the Americas, one of the most important things they discovered there were massive silver deposits in the Viceroyalty of Peru. 
The silver there could now be mined, shipped across the Pacific from Acapulco, Mexico, to Manila in the Philippines, and exchanged with Chinese merchants there for silk and porcelain. Silver is also pouring into Chinese hands from Japan, where it's being heavily mined there as well. China became a massive global consumer of silver during this time. Why is that the case, though? This is because around the same time that Manila is first established by the Spanish, the Chinese government had simplified their tax system and now required all taxes to be paid in silver. This caused the value of silver in China to leap, making the profits of European merchants trading there to do the same. So the Spanish mining town of Potosi booms at this time, and life is great for the elites profiting from the silver trade. However, for the natives there, forced to mine the precious metal, life is impossibly difficult. Native men often felt they were given a death sentence when they were picked to work in the mines. But back in Spain, the state initially grew very wealthy from this trade, and they're going to use it to fund several wars fought in the name of ensuring that the Catholic version of Christianity would beat back the rising Protestant movement. Now, this is something we'll talk more about in the next episode. Meanwhile, in Japan, the Tokugawa shogunate took the profits to strengthen their control over the rival lords within Japan. China's economy is going to work even harder to keep up with European demands for silks, and India's cotton textile industry thrives as European demands increase with all this new spending in the region. So what else is circulating around the world during this time? What about furs? Why furs? Well, we know it got colder in the 16th century as a result of the Little Ice Age. I seem to keep mentioning this. We also know that Europeans were making their way into the Americas further than ever, and that Russia was expanding into the wild country of Siberia. European populations were starting to rise at the expense of their natural environment, which included shrinking the populations of their wild animals. So all these factors combined to create a larger demand for furs in Europe. So the fur trade brings Europeans into the wilderness of America. English and French traders are going to push into the Appalachian Mountains, the Great Lakes region, the Mississippi River Valley, and other parts of the interior that are going to become points of commercial contact between European merchants and native trappers. This is going to help satisfy European demand for furs, and it does initially make for wealthier native trappers. But it almost wipes out beaver populations of North America. It greatly diminishes the population of deer in the modern American South. Natives of the interior, like the Aztecs and the Incas before them, they became more exposed to diseases for which they had no immunity, which decimated lots of tribes. And these tribes became desperate for more members and now fought with each other to assimilate new members. They rely more heavily on Europeans and their trade goods, including alcohol, and they're obligated to ally with either the French or the British during their wars between each other in the 18th century. In the long term, for the American indigenous populations, this trade is going to cause more strain than benefit for them. Now, meanwhile, over in Russia... There's no European competition for furs there, and they could impose their tribute to be paid by the indigenous peoples of Siberia in the form of furs. This helps them grow very wealthy during this time period, and Russia can reinvest that wealth into even more territorial and military growth. Now, the system that perhaps had the longest lasting influence in this time period resulted in 12.5 million people being forced from their homes. 1.8 million of them never to survive the journey, and the remaining nearly 11 million 
and their descendants to live a life characterized by a lack of freedom, brutality, and violence. Before we talk of anything else relating to the transatlantic slave trade, all of that needed to be said first. But slavery isn't new to world history, though this is the first time we've heard about it in this series. It's been a relevant labor system in parts of Afro-Eurasia since ancient times. However, what makes this Atlantic system of slavery different from others is how dominant it was in the economy of the Americas and how poorly African slaves were thought of and treated. This was not a system that one often left. In fact, one's descendants could usually expect to similarly live in a life of enslavement. So why did it come to be? Europeans began to cultivate and refine sugar on islands in the Atlantic after learning about this practice from the Arabs. What they quickly came to realize was how hard and dangerous this work was. It was hard to find willing laborers for these new sugar plantations. The solution to that particular issue was to acquire coerced laborers, meaning to force people to do the work against their will. Slavery. As the Americas became colonized and sugar production, eventually followed by the production of tobacco and cotton, expanded throughout the two continents, natives were employed as slave labor. However, disease leading to death and native escape meant that native populations aren't enough to sustain production levels. But on the other hand, Africans were able to survive European diseases, and they were not familiar enough with their geographic setting in the Americas to use it as much to their advantage against European settlers. So they tragically became the perfect candidate for enslavement. The fact that they were of different physical appearance to white Europeans made it easier to rationalize such inhuman treatment. Racism allowed individuals to imagine other human beings as less important than themselves and thus deserving of being treated as less than a human. So slaves were acquired by European merchants who worked usually on the west coast of Africa. There they would work with leaders of African states to exchange guns, tobacco, alcohol, and precious materials for slaves who were often captured in warfare and conquest aided by the guns they received from Europeans. The enslaved individuals would then be marched to the coast where they were often crammed into the cellars of European forts with poor ventilation and no toilets or sewers. They would then be stowed onto ships of similarly appalling conditions where they'd endure over two months typically stuffed below deck. Most of the 12.5 million that traveled were destined for the sugar plantations of the Caribbean and South America far less to the cotton and tobacco plantations of the north. Now, this was due to the particularly harsh climate and characteristics of sugar plantations. These individuals often did not have their own children, unlike their counterparts to the north, and so a constant, massive supply of enslaved human beings were needed to satisfy the demand. But please don't think enslaved Africans took this lying down. Many slave ships had revolts. People would avoid working hard, some rebelled violently against their captors, and others ran away to join communities of runaway slaves known as maroon communities. Now back in Africa, the continent suffered tremendously as a whole due to the Atlantic slave trade. Africa lost a good proportion of its population. This wasn't as bad though as the losses in the Americas. More significantly, Africa lost a sizable portion of its working population, meaning a decline in economic output and an imbalance in the gender balance as more men journeyed across the Middle Passage than women. Women could find themselves working harder to make up for losses, or perhaps themselves enslaved in other West African states as a source of labor. Women could also emerge in more positions of political power. 
as evidenced by Queen Anna and Zynga of Ndonga. Some states, like Dahomey, also participated in the slave trade to grow the power of their state. Incentives for such reprehensible behavior were made possible by this tragic system of slavery. Its effects lingered long after the successful movements to abolish slavery in the 19th century. Racist beliefs have remained in pockets of American and European societies, leading to ongoing instances of legal segregation, social discrimination, and general hostility between racial groups at different times and places over the last 200 years. So remember, by 1750, Europeans will effectively have control over the Indian Ocean and the newly established Atlantic and Pacific routes of exchange that had not existed when our studies of this unit began in 1450. European economic practices will have tremendously negative effects for the people of the Americas, most of Africa, and various parts of Asia. Yet, China and Japan largely stood to benefit from much of these developments, while many Asian merchant communities in the Indian Ocean continued to thrive as well. So we've got one more episode to add to the narrative of this period between 1450 and 1750. Next up is a focus on the cultural patterns of this time period. Remember, if you found this episode helpful and want to express your thanks, please check out that PayPal link in the episode description. Until next time, take it away, Evie. Take care, everyone.